Amen. So, points are a part of our culture, right? Uh, for some of you that watch sports, uh, watch football, you may have watched some games yesterday and we were a little frustrated, uh, being one of them, that your team didn't get quite the points that they, uh, that they wanted. Uh, maybe, maybe if my team did not show up at all yesterday. That is, a, that is an accurate statement. Ohio State barely won. Ohio State barely won. We all have our teams, and uh, many of us with our teams, we, we, uh, we look at the points that they scored and they weren't enough. And I think we, as a culture, we live in that space of, i got to get enough points to be successful a lot. And, and maybe we even walk in here today with that mentality of, I don't, I don't know if i got enough points. Maybe I didn't get enough points at work this week, as the analogy would go. I didn't get enough points this week to get a promotion. Maybe that's literal. You didn't get enough points this week. There's some sort of systematic reason. Or maybe it's more an analogy of, you, of your performance just didn't hardly get to the point that you wanted or your boss wanted to get you to that space of success. Maybe you walk in here saying, I, I, wonder if, I wonder if I got enough points this week so that she, she won't leave me. I wonder if I got enough points this week so that he will, he will take me on a date. I wonder if I got enough points this week so that, so that my mom won't yell at me. I'm just looking for points to go on a day. There you go. <laughs> We're going to start counting those up now. Uh -oh. <laughs> so we live in a points culture. And, and Jim is quite aware of the points culture in which we, we are in. And uh, at times there, we feel quite a, quite a gap between the points we feel like we might need and the points that we have. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount together, a very famous sermon that Jesus preached um, in His message to really exemplify his, his ministry and what His teaching looked like and what His teaching experience was. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 and dig in together. So if you haven't already turned there, you can. I think I've already said turn there, so I'm sure you already have. But Matthew chapter 5 is a, a helpful passage of Scripture. I want us to remember... How, what we said last week about this entire uh, few chapters of the Bible. So the, the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that's very famous, very well known. If you're new to Christianity, you might not have heard of it before. But just be aware that the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most quoted passages and parts of Scripture in all the Bible. It's very important to us understanding who Jesus was and, and the kind of teaching and principles that He wanted us to understand. But last week we started a very important point, and that is that uh, as we studied the way the sermon's put together, at least a little bit, we understood that, that Jesus wants us to see more than anything in this sermon that He has power to change us. That we are His masterpiece. And that's what we're calling this series as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Will and I together over the next few weeks. We're calling this masterpiece because as we encounter the principles and the, and the life guidance that Jesus, the commands that Jesus is going to give us in the Sermon on the Mount, it's important always to remember that this isn't something that Jesus wants you to do for Him. It's something that Jesus is promising to do in you. At the end of this sermon, Jesus says... I am, this teaching is to so show my authority, my power, my ability to change you and create in you a masterpiece that gives me glory. That's what your life and my life, our lives as the community of Christ can be. And the Sermon on the Mount gives us hope and helps us start to see what that life will look like. Today we're going to jump into what are often called the Beatitudes. Or a, a poem is really what this is, a poem of eight blessings. 
So if you, uh, if you get in your Bible for a second and you read, you'll say, well, I think, I think he might have miscounted, but we'll, I'll explain that at some point probably next week. But there's eight blessings in this poem to help us understand what it looks like to encounter that power of change that Jesus wants to bring in our life. We talked about how powerfully effective we need, uh, how, how, how powerfully effective the life-changing uh, effect of Jesus can be in our lives last week and how we're desperate for that, how hungry we are for that uh, in our marriages and our friendships and our families and our parenting and our businesses all across the world and all across our worlds and uh, we we left it almost at this place of okay but how do we get there how do we become that kind of person that Jesus changes and his power is placed on us so that we get to be truly his masterpiece how do we get ourselves into position to experience that effect in our lives well Matthew chapter 5 as we begin the Beatitudes is going to help us start to understand that a little bit Let's read it together, and then I'm going to make a few comments. Verse 1, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed, now pay attention to this word blessed. It's going to show up a whole lot. It's very important to this, or maybe even something to underline in your Bible. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is that poem I was talking about. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And that's really the end of the poem. And then, and then there's a little comment added in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. In the same way they persecute the prophets who are before you. So I want to show you one more thing contextually before I get into some of the details of what's right here in this passage to help us understand what's going on. Jesus Jesus, uh, in, the, in the overall Sermon on the Mount, there's all these different pieces that Jesus puts together. And I'm not going to go into that in too much detail. We, we have introduced something as a church that we'll do pretty regularly called footnotes. And we'll, we'll uh, launch that out. We'll I'll blast that out on Twitter and Facebook and our, our website where we may take a chance to go a little deeper in some of the things we're studying. And so I'll probably try to, try to take a chance to cover some of the whys behind some of the details we're talking about in this passage in a footnotes uh, episode this week. So keep your eyes out for, for that. I do want to make one point now, though, to help us understand contextually what is going on in the Sermon on the Mount, especially in this poem and these Beatitudes as we go forward. Verse 17 is a bit of a seam or a bit of a summary of what's gone before. And it's important for us to read it to start understanding what's going on, especially in this first chapter, this first section of the three sections of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. Verse 17 says, Do not think that I am come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law, until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So this is a summary statement of Jesus. It helps us understand what the Sermon on the Mount is. And let's, let's just quickly say what he's saying. He says, I want to tell you what the law is really about. That's what Jesus is saying right there. 
and how important it is to be applied in the right way. Verse 20, this is one of those chief thematic ideas that he says. Verse 20, for I say to you, or in other words, the result of what I just said should be an understanding that you get. You should get something out of what I just said. And this is one of the things you should get out of what I just said. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's pause and think about that. Scribes and Pharisees, who were they? They were the people in the church who were superstars, we might would call them. Um, if they were an a, 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 a NBA, this would be the Hall of Fame, the, the Michael Jordans and the Magic Johnsons and the Larry Birds. Um, if this was, uh, this was the business world, this might be Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. Uh, these were the, the best of the best of the best in the religious culture, in the religious world uh, that Jesus was speaking into. Uh, they would have been the, 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 considered the most righteous. They would have, done the, they would have been the, voted correctly. They'd have worn the right clothes. They'd have watched the right mu- movies. They would have listened to the right music. They would have, their attendance at their religious organization would have been impeccable. Uh, their morality and their ethics would have been above board. These were the people that everyone else looked to in the community and said, that's what you want to be like. And Jesus said, you got to get above that. Your righteousness has to surpass their righteousness for you to be a part of the kingdom of God, for you to experience the kingdom of God in your lives. That's a hard standard, right? It gets tougher. We've looked at this a few times, but this is the day where it really comes to life. So Jesus will go through and kind of expand the law in chapter 5 in a lot of different ways. Will's going to walk us through that. But then he gets down to verse four, uh, the end of, of verse 48, and he says that statement I've ref- referred to a few times that will blow your mind if you haven't read it before. So if you read this, and you read this as a, a set of laws or rules that somebody just has to obey to be saved, for instance, to become a Christian, I want to point out the last rule that Jesus gives in His ultimate list of rules. Verse 48. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a tough rule. How y'all doing with that one? <laughs> That's my response too. <laughs> How are we doing with that one? What Jesus is doing in this in the Sermon on the Mount, in this passage, is to help us understand that He is expanding and demanding more than what the law may appear to, to represent on its own so that we begin to feel the weight of the impossible nature of God's demand of righteousness in our life. He's trying to show us how many points it would take for us, go back to our points idea, how many points it would take for us to earn God's approval. And first He says... The best in your community, think about who the best are. Think of whoever it is in the best. Maybe it's a preacher you know. Maybe it's Billy Graham. Maybe it's Mother Teresa. Maybe it's a, your mother. Uh, maybe it's a friend. You just think, man, that, if I could just be like them. Jesus, first of all, sets them up and says, you've got to be better than them. You've got to have more points than they've got. And then he goes over here, if that isn't enough, several different laws. You, you thought the law said do this. That's a lot harder than you thought. Do that. You thought the law said, do this. It's a lot harder than you thought. Do this. Expand, expand, expand. And then he comes to the very end of it, in case we didn't get the whole point. And he goes, and by the way, how many points do you really need? You need as many points as God has. Whew. That's going to be tough. The purpose of that, or the understanding of that context, helps us understand why he says what he says and the Beatitudes. So that's what we're going to dig into as we understand that context a little bit today. So we saw... Keep that in mind. Keep that in the background. Jesus is wanting us to understand that there are too many points for us to earn on our own. Right? So keep that in the background. And then let's dig into the Beatitudes together. A few things about the Beatitudes. One is we we talked about that word blessed several times. 
If you've been around church for a while, you may have heard somebody say it means happy. Uh, I, I spent a little bit more time than I'd ever spent studying this word to understand what it means. And a better translation would probably be favor. Favor to the person. Even, even sometimes fortunate and privileged is a way to translate this word. But I like that word favor because it reminds us of another, another word we speak to a lot in the Bible. Anybody know what I would be thinking of when we, when we talk about the word favor? What's another word we use in the Christian world a lot? Grace, exactly right. Perfect. So we talk about grace being the free favor of God, right? It doesn't cost us, it costs Him. It's the free favor of God. And we emphasize in that the freeness of it. Well, this word is a very similar word in what it ultimately means, but it's emphasizing the favor part of the free favor of God. It's, it's emphasizing what does the favor mean in grace. What Jesus is doing in this poem is to help us understand and get our minds wrapped around what, what, is it mean, what does it mean to experience God's favor. And in doing so, He's connecting it back to what we talked about last week. How do we put ourselves in a position so that God's presence is close to us and we experience His life-changing power where we desperately need to experience Him? Think about what the word favor means in everyday life. If I were to say, I'm going to do you a favor... I'm going to do something kind for you, right? I'm going to do something for you. Actively invest in who you are. I'm going to help you move or something like that. Talk about earning enough points. Uh, you ever try to earn enough points to get somebody to help you move? That's a lot of points too. You yeah, you've got to earn a lot of points for that one. Um, favor. That's what it means to do somebody a favor. I, I, my favorite way to think about this is to think about the word favorite. So I, I tried to always finagle my way into being at least one teacher's favorite in school. And it was my last year of high school I discovered that much more important than having the te be the teacher's favorite was to be the lunch lady's favorite. Because when you were the lunch lady's favorite and you walked through the lunch lady's like, here, here's your slop, next, here's your slop, next, here's your slop. Oh, Lance, here, I got something for you down here. I, got, I saved a biscuit this morning for you from, from breakfast. Oh, and we had some, you like the pizza. Here's some pizza for you from yesterday. It's a little gross, but hey, at least it's pizza. When you're, when you're 18, you don't care if pizza's gross or not. You just like pizza. Oh, Lance, here you are. Just give me something better. That was what it meant to be the favorite. And that's really what it means to experience God's favor. It means that all of us as believers get to be in that position where we're God's favorite. We get to experience His favor. We get to experience His, His kindness, His acts of regular, un, unadulterated, unfiltered love and kindness towards us. And that's what this passage is saying. It's saying that there are, some, there are a group of people, there are a kind of people, if you will, that are in a position to be favored by God. To experience that, that position of being the favorite. What are these kind of, what, what does this look like as we keep reading together? It says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, there's a lot of different ways to look at this, but in this context, it's referring to, this could be said or translated as spiritually bankrupt. So, if that didn't catch you off guard because you've read this passage a lot or you've been around following Jesus for a while, just reflect on that a minute. Think about what we just said. To be in a position of God's favor. To be in a position where you're one of God's favorites. Now what would you expect? I mean, we're, we've been around church. Everybody in here has been around church for a while, but maybe some people listening have not been. I think what we would naturally expect is, okay, you want to experience that? Boy, I've got a list for you. You ready for, you ready for your list? Alright, if you're going to be God's favorite, okay, here, here's what you got to do. you got to do this. That's what I would expect, right? And that kind of naturally where we humanly 
feel like we, we, we feel like we have to do. But Jesus says instead of being rich, if you will, in spiritual things, in order to become a, be in the position of God's favor, you need to be poor. You need to be in spiritual poverty before you can experience God's favor and God's blessing and God's intervention in your life. That's, that's the accounting, if you will, of where you stand with God. That is you making a mental account, a volitional account, a choice of your will of where you stand for God. God, I'm in spiritual poverty before you. What's the emotional response to that? The next, the next part of the Beatitudes is, Blessed are those who are mourning because they will be comforted. The emotional response is, is mourning, weeping. Being broken over. And I think that's important because I think we miss this sometimes. We are a very logical culture and none, no one more than, than myself. My wife says that I have emotional problems because I don't know how to kind of get into that space often. You know, like, uh, how do I... Hey, I'll be able to look around. Everybody's crying at movies. I'm like, what, what, what are they all crying for? You know, I don't understand. Yeah, they just died, but death happens all the time. You know, you know just, uh, just that's the way my brain works. So maybe that's the way some of us are. But I like that Jesus challenges us to follow a logical reckoning of our brokenness and, and bankruptcy before God, that we're in spiritual poverty before God, to a challenging us to transition that into emotional response. And here's what that implies to me. That implies for me it's, is that we need to think about how we uh, work on stimulating our emotions, affecting our emotions to match up with reality. Now, if you're scared of emotions, the other side of the coin is dangerous. And I get that. The other, the other way to look at that would be to try to stimulate your emotions or affect your emotions so that they don't match reality, right? I don't have any reason to have joy, but I'm going to try to have, like, have joy. Think about how emotions were engaged in this culture. So uh, when the word mourn came up, when you were reading this and when Jesus was teaching this or you were, you were hearing Jesus teach it and you heard the word mourn, here's what you would have thought of immediately. Would have been a funeral experience of the people of that day. And in a funeral experience of the people of that day, they would hire mourners. They'd go out and say, okay, we had so-and-so die. We need to make sure that, that Uncle Jimmy is appropriately uh, mourned uh, in his funeral. funeral. Um, I shouldn't have said Jimmy, Jim. Sorry about that. Just, just throwing that out, you know. Uh, yeah, we'll say, we'll, we'll say um, um, uh, Leroy instead. We don't have any Leroy, so we should be good there. So Uncle Leroy has passed away. We need to appropriately mourn the death of Leroy. Right? So they would hire mourners to come in and weep and wail over, over Uncle Leroy as he died. Now, I've got to ask you a question. Somebody hires you to come weep and wail over Uncle Leroy. Do you think that's a, very, just, do you think that's a natural thing? Do you think that's a, a something that you're like, okay, I've got to get myself into the, into the position. I mean, how would you even do that? I don't even know how to do that. Uncle Leroy's dead. Who's Uncle Leroy? Right, give me a little bit about him. Okay, I got this. You know, I mean, I don't even have any idea how that works. It's so, so foreign to me. But I think what's going on here, if I understand this passage correctly, is that Jesus is saying, you know that you're spiritual bankrupt. It is, appropriately, it is appropriate for you to have an emotional response that matches that reality. And because that is appropriate, it's appropriate for us as believers to be okay stimulating our emotions. It's, something that's, it's the same thing that Paul told Timothy when he said, stir up the calling that's within you. We're afraid, we're scared to death of emotions in the Christian church sometimes. It's okay that worship is a part of stirring up our affections towards Jesus Christ. That should be the, re the emotional response to this mental accounting of our spiritual bankruptcy. There's a couple of other ones I want to focus on now, and then we'll focus on the rest next week. 
It says, blessed, in this translation, blessed are the gentle. Uh, some, would, some translations may say meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, literally, it means uh, someone who is uh, not, they don't, let me see if I can remember this part of it. It means someone who has, does not consider themselves to be self-important. That's a very long way to say that, but that's literally what the definition is. They don't consider their own self-important, their own self-importance. They devalue it. I'm just not that big a deal, is the way a person who reflects this, this idea might be. So this is how they begin to apply this to other people. They don't, they don't count up all their good and all their, all their righteousness and say, I'm pretty good. They go, I'm not that big a deal. I don't have this all together. That's what someone who is meek would represent. And then finally, one of my favorite ones is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Now I read that a lot, and I think a little bit more about the emotional response of that, like, what, what does it mean to be hungry? But, but before you get there, get what Jesus is saying. He's saying that they are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Now, if I'm hungry, let's, let's think about it this way. My kids say to me sometimes, and I've said to them, and I've, I've said to others, I'm starving. You ever said that? Ever heard that? Right? Now, what do we say when our kids tell us that? We say, no, you're not starving. You're not star-. There's some kids in Africa who are starving, Right? Always do that. So, what's that? I know, right? We should have a heart for... Anyway. Um, we say that because we, we're trying to help them understand that you're not really hungry. You're not, or at least you're not really starving. This statement, before it's a statement of emotion, is a statement of fact. You are starving to death for righteousness. That's not an emotional statement. That's not a, I want to... Uh, build up inside of my heart a sense of how hungry I am or how desperate I am, at least not first, for righteousness. It's not first that. It is first and foremost a statement of fact about our condition before God. So if you are starving to death for righteousness, what does that mean you don't have? Righteousness. Jesus is walking us through this entire passage of Scripture to help us understand a theological principle that that we are, when it comes to points, we ain't got none. We got zero. Zero points. He set the standard up at the very beginning by reminding us of the context. That that the whole whole point of Him expanding the law is for you to know, for you need to be as perfect as God is perfect if you want to have points. Go in a points category. And then He goes through these passages to go, who gets blessed, who gets favored by God? He is the person who doesn't have any points. It's kind of the opposite of what we think, right? So imagine how that might impact us. Now let's, let's dig in on that for a second. So if points, the idea is this, simply in the economy of God, in your relationship with God, points don't count. So you remember Little League? <laughs> when I was in Little League, when I got a hit and I got on base and I got on home point, we got a, when I got on home base, we got a point. I hear rumors that that's not the case anymore. <sighs> Points don't count. So, I, uh, I watched my, one of my nephews play baseball. They're all older now, but it was, it was been a few years ago. We watched them play baseball, and I kept, Where, where's the scoreboard? Scoreboard? There's the scoreboard. Why are they putting points on the scoreboard? Oh, oh we don't want to do that. We don't want to hurt little Johnny's feelings. Oh, you know, we, we want to make sure we don't, we don't put any points on the board. And that drove me nuts. And it drove me nuts because in, in my soul, deep in who I am, I want to know whether I'm winning or losing. 
I want to know what I've done and how it counts and how I get credit for it. Give me credit for my points. Jesus is saying in the economy of God, points don't count. And it's a good thing they don't because the winning score is to be as perfect as God is perfect. Now think about how this might affect your marriage. If we live this out in our family, in our relationships, how might, how might this, this affect how we live it out? What if you stop keeping points at home in your relationship? What, what if you said something along the lines of, what if you stop saying, if he does this one more time, I'm going to do blank. If she would just do this every week, I would do that for her. What if you stopped counting points in your home? What if we lived out this kind of grace, this gospel relationship in our marriages? We, we have used the term in our marriage sometimes brownie points, right? Like, oh, and of course we know it's just for fun. But oh man, I, I did do this and I'll get the brownie points I need for my wife to... to um, She'll get me that present I want or, or she'll cook me that dinner I want. What if we got rid of brownie points in our marriages and our relationships? I, I read a recent in a book called Eaters, uh, Leaders Eat Last by a guy named Simon Sinek recently. And he, they had done a study in businesses. And in businesses where there is a no termination rule, which means uh, that you can't be terminated for any reason, usually there's some sort of exclusionary thing such as theft or, or ethical reasons. But in businesses and organizations where there's a no term, termination rule, they're much more successful than businesses that have a very strict termination rule, which means you get fired pretty easily. What they've discovered is in those organizations there's such trust that people innovate more. They're willing to make mistakes more. That, they, that they're not so worried about the immediate reactionary moment of doing something, doing something wrong because they know they're going, to get, they're going to have grace in that moment and they can grow and develop through that moment and become what the business really wants them to be. The points don't count. Think about, think about for a second how this can affect how we speak to each other's lives as believers. So, Let's look at it the opposite for a second. If, if, if I come in here, what if we had right now on our foreheads a little digital readout? This is getting scary, I know. A little digital readout. And on it, you had how many points you had as a Christian. So you came in here, and uh, Will had 17. And I had 12. My wife had 7,463,000. That's what I do. That's brownie points, by the way, if y'all didn't get that earlier. Um, what if we had points? What, how would that make us feel as we challenge each other? I might not feel good if I walked up to Rick and I was like, oh, let's see, 860. I'm not going to tell Rick about what happened last week. He's got 860 points. Oh my goodness, I can't talk to Rick about his 860, about my 12 points last week. I had a negative 10. Oh, it was a rough week. I can't talk to 860 over here about it. But if I know Rick comes in here with zero points, and I come in here with zero points, and you come in here with zero points, I'm free. We're free. We're free to engage, to be real, to be honest, to challenge each other, to look to Jesus for grace, to look to Jesus for change. We're going to talk about next week where points do count, but for today, relish in the reality that points don't count when it comes to your relationship with God. And if they did, you couldn't get enough anyway. Because the standard is His infinite holiness. 
I know I've said this a whole lot, but if you understand the idea of infinity for just a millisecond and understand that He is infinitely more glorious and grand and holy and righteous than you are or I are, and if we're going to have any standard, it has to be Him as the standard. And if He's the standard of righteousness... If we measure how far away we are, we call that a delta in the business world. If we measure the the delta or the margin between us and God, the span, the space between us and God, if we measure that, He is infinitely far away from us in His value and His worth and His righteousness and His holiness. That's how far we have to go if we want to go by our points to earn God's favor, to be in God's blessing, to experience His life change. So so think about that for a second. This this blows my mind when I think about it. That's how far we have to go. But what does that mean? That means that's also how far He had to go to come to us. You want to measure God's love? First you have to measure His, His holiness, His righteousness. And you will discover that His holiness and His righteousness is infinite. And when you discover the span, the delta, the space between us and God because of how holy He is, that it's infinite, you'll understand something that will blow your mind and that is that His love is equally infinite because He also had to span, re-span the gap to come back to us. That's how much He loves you. That's how much grace He has for you. As we engage our culture, our culture does not need to hear from people who have it all figured out. They need to hear the gospel from people who are are figuring it out as they go, who are screwed up too. Because we're not trying to help them get more points. We're trying to help them say, I am spiritually bankrupt. I'm weeping because of how spiritually broken I am. I am, I don't value what I bring to the table at all. Yeah, I stink, but it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't count. My best day doesn't count. My worst day doesn't count. The only thing that counts is the cross of Christ. That's how you get into a position where you can say like Paul, I don't glory in anything. All the righteous things I do, all my mission work I do, all my turning away from sin that I do, I don't glory in that. I'm not proud of it. I'm not impressed by it. It's not that big a deal. It's nothing. He even calls it, the King James translates it as dung. He calls all of his righteousness dung. All my good works, that's what I count them as. Because of that, I can say I don't glory in anything except for the cross. That's all I have. That's all that matters. That's all that counts. My points don't count, but the cross counts. We spend so much of our times as individual humans and sometimes as Christians sometimes as non-Christians, just trying to make sure everyone understands. Hey, I'm not bad. Why do bad things happen to good people? There are none. There hasn't been one since Christ. There wasn't one before Him. We are all at the foot of the cross with zero points. And that may sound like bad news. But what it means is that we only have one hope. And our hope is Jesus. And when we understand that and when we calculate ourselves effectively as radically, infinitely unrighteous, we get to have a gospel identity. This is the last thought. What is, what is identity? Identity is what I believe about myself and who I am. We said a few weeks ago, your who defines your do. Which meant, 
who you believe you are, what your identity is, will define how you live your life. So gospel identity is who I am, which is, uh, we discovered as we studied that, that Jesus looks at us and He says, you are my beloved Son in who I am well pleased. That's our identity now because we're in Christ. Christ looks at us, God looks at us as, as if we were Christ. That's our identity. But having a gospel identity is two things. It's knowing who we are and why we are who we are. And every day understanding and building our foundation on the reality that we are only who we are because of the gracious work of Christ. Every single moment, every single day, come back to that, to that platform of I'm spiritually bankrupt, I'm in spiritual poverty, I am starving to death for righteousness, which means I don't have any, and cause that to put you in a position to where your only hope and your only dependence every day is the righteousness of Jesus. Whether you've been a Christian for 30 seconds, you're not one, or you've been one for 300 years. I don't think that person has existed for a while. And that's the challenge of this passage. The challenge of this passage is that for us to start out as we encounter a lot of powerful truth about how we're to live our life for Jesus, to remember that the only way we can live our life for Jesus is by Him empowering and changing our hearts. And the only way we get into position for Him to empower and change our hearts is by realizing that we can never earn enough points to earn it, and our only hope is to abandon ourselves to the great work and the power of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's pray together.